Section 49 of A Popular History of France, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cathy Barrett. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 4, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 34. Henry III and the Religious Wars, 1574-1589. to Part 4. And what was Henry the Third, King of France, doing whilst two great parties and two great men were thus carrying on around his throne and in his name so passionate a war, on the one side to maintain the despotic unity of Catholic Christianism, and on the other to win religious liberty for Christian Protestantism? We will borrow here the words of the most enlightened and most impartial historian of the sixteenth century, Monsieur de Toux if we acted upon our own personal impressions alone there would be danger of appearing too severe towards a king whom we profoundly despise Quote, after having stayed some time in bourbonness henry the third went to lyons in order to be within hail of his two favourites joyeuse and epernon who were each on the march with an army whilst he was at lyons as unconcerned as if all the realm were enjoying perfect peace he took to collecting those little dogs which are thought so much of in that town everybody was greatly surprised to see a king of france in the midst of so terrible a war and in extreme want of money expending upon such pleasures all the time he had at disposal and all the sums he could scrape together how lavish soever this prince may have been yet if comparison be made between the expenditure upon the royal household and that incurred at lyons for dogs the latter will be found infinitely higher than the former without counting expenses for hunting-dogs and birds which always come to a considerable sum in the households of kings it cost him every year more than a hundred thousand gold crowns for little lyonnaise dogs and he maintained at his court with large salaries a multitude of men and women who had nothing to do but to feed them he also spent large sums in monkeys parrots and other creatures from foreign countries of which he always kept a great number sometimes he got tired of them and gave them all away then his passion for such creatures returned and they had to be found for him at no matter what cost since i am upon the subject of this prince's attachment to matters anything but worthy of the kingly majesty i will say a word about his passion for those miniatures which were to be found in manuscript prayer-books and which before the practice of printing were done by the most skilful painters henry the third seemed to buy such works intended for princes and laid by in cabinets of curiosities only to spoil them as soon as he had them he cut them out and then pasted them upon the walls of his chapels as children do an incomprehensible character of mind in certain things capable of upholding his rank in some rising above his position in others sinking below childishness a mind and character incomprehensible indeed if corruption lassitude listlessness and fear would not explain the existence of everything that is abnormal and pitiable about human nature in a feeble cold and selfish creature excited and at the same time worn out by the business and the pleasures of kingship which henry the third could neither do without nor bear the burden of his perplexity was extreme in his relations with the other two henrys who gave like himself their name to this war which was called by contemporaries the war of the three henrys the successes of henry de guise and of henry de bourbon were almost equally disagreeable to henry de valois 
it is probable that if he could have chosen he would have preferred those of henry de bourbon if they caused him jealousy they did not raise in him the same distrust he knew the king of navarre's loyalty and did not suspect him of aiming to become whilst he himself was living king of france besides he considered the protestants less powerful and less formidable than the leaguers henry de guise on the contrary was evidently in his eyes an ambitious conspirator determined to push his own fortunes on to the very crown of france if the chances were favourable to him and not only armed with all the power of catholicism but urged forward by the passions of the league perhaps further and certainly more quickly than his own intentions travelled since fifteen eighty four the leaguers had at paris acquired strong organization amongst the populace the city had been partitioned out into five districts under five heads who shortly afterwards added to themselves eleven others in order that in the secret council of the association each amongst the sixteen quarters of paris might have its representative and director thence the famous committee of sixteen which played so great and so formidable a part in the history of that period it was religious fanaticism and democratic fanaticism closely united and in a position to impose their wills upon their most eminent leaders upon the duke of guise himself in vain did henry the third attempt to resume some sort of authority in paris his government his public and private life and his person were daily attacked insulted and menaced from the elevation of the pulpit and in the public thoroughfares by qualified preachers or mob orators on the sixteenth of december fifteen eighty seven the sorbonne voted after a deliberation which it was said was to be kept secret quote, that the government might be taken away from princes who were found not what they ought to be just as the administration of a property from a guardian opened to suspicion on the thirtieth of december the king summoned to the louvre his court of parliament and the faculty of theology quote, I know of your precious resolution of the 16th of this month, said he to the Sorbonne. I have been requested to take no notice of it, seeing that it was passed after dinner. I have no mind to avenge myself for these outrages as I might, and as Pope Sixtus V did when he sent to the galleys certain cordeliers for having dared to slander him in their sermons. There is not one of you who has not deserved as much and more." but it is my good pleasure to forget all and to pardon you on condition of its not occurring again if it should i beg my court of parliament here present to exact exemplary justice and such as the seditious like you may take warning by so as to mind their own business at their exit after this address the parliament and the sorbonne being quite sure that the king would not carry the matter further withdrew smiling and saying quote, he certainly has spirit, but not enough of it. Or, habet quidem animum, sed non satis animi. The Duke of Guise's sister, the Duchess of Montpensier, took to getting up and spreading about all sorts of pamphlets against the king and his government. Quote, the king commanded her to quit his city of Paris. She did nothing of the kind, and three days after she was even brazen enough to say that she carried at her waist the scissors which would give a third crown to brother Henry de Valois. End quote at the close of fifteen eighty seven the duke of guise made a trip to rome quote, with a suite of five and he only remained three days so disguised that he was not recognized there and discovered himself to nobody but cardinal pelève with whom he was in communication day and night eighteen months previously the cardinal had given a very favorable reception to a case drawn up by an advocate in the parliament of paris named david 
who maintained that quote, although the line of the capet had succeeded to the temporal administration of the kingdom of charlemagne it had not succeeded to the apostolic benediction which appertained to none but the posterity of the said charlemagne and that the line of capet being some of them possessed by a spirit of giddiness and stupidity and others heretic and excommunicated the time had come for restoring the crown to the true heirs End quote. that is to say to the house of lorraine which claimed to be issue of charlemagne this case was passed on it is said from rome to philip the second king of spain and m de saint-gore ambassador of france at madrid sent henry the third a copy of it whatever may have been the truth about this trip to rome on the part of the duke of guise and its influence upon what followed the chiefs of the leaguers resolved to deal a great blow the Lorraine princes and their intimate associates met at Nancy in January 1588, and decided that a petition should be presented to the king, that he should be called upon to join himself more openly and in good earnest to the League, and to remove from offices of consequence all the persons that should be pointed out to him, that the Holy Inquisition should be established, at any rate in the good towns that important places should be put into the hands of specified chiefs who should have the power of constructing fortifications there that heretics should be taxed a third or at the least a fourth of their property as long as the war lasted and lastly that the life should be spared of no enemy taken prisoner unless upon his swearing and finding good surety to live as a catholic and upon paying in ready money the worth of his property if it had not already been sold these monstrous proposals drawn up in eleven articles were immediately carried to the king he did not reject them but he demanded and took time to discuss them with the authors the negotiation was prolonged the ferment in paris was redoubled the king it was said meant to withdraw his person must be secured the committee of sixteen took measures to that end one of its members got into his hands the keys of the gate of st denis from soissons where he was staying the duke of guise sent to paris the count of brissac with four other captains of the league to hold themselves in readiness for any event and he ordered his brother the duke of aumale to stoutly maintain his garrisons in the places of picardy which the king it was said meant to take from him Quote, if the king leaves paris the duke wrote to bernard de mendoza philip the second's ambassador in france i will make him think about returning thither before he has gone a day's march towards the picard philip the second made guise an offer of three hundred thousand crowns six thousand lunxnexts and twelve hundred lances as soon as he should have broken with henry the third the abscess will soon burst wrote the ambassador to the king his master on the eighth of may fifteen eighty eight at eleven p m the duke of guise set out from soissons after having commended himself to the prayers of the convents in the town he arrived the next morning before paris which he entered about midday by the gate of st martin the leaguers had been expecting him for several days though he had covered his head with his cloak he was readily recognized and eagerly cheered the burgesses left their houses and the tradesmen their shops to see him and follow him shouting hurrah for guise hurrah for the pillar of the church the crowd increased at every step he arrived in front of the palace of catherine de medici who had not expected him and grew pale at sight of him Quote, my dear cousin said she to him i am very glad to see you but i should have been better pleased at another time madame i am come to clear myself from all the calumnies of my enemies do me the honour to conduct me to the king yourself 
Catherine lost no time in giving the king warning by one of her secretaries. On receipt of this notice, Henry III, who had at first been stolid and silent, rose abruptly from his chair. Quote, Tell my lady mother that as she wishes to present the Duke of Guise to me, I will receive him in the chamber of the queen my wife. End quote. The envoy departed. The king, turning to one of his officers, Colonel Alfonso Corso, said to him, quote, Monsieur de Guise has just arrived at Paris, contrary to my orders. What would you do in my place? End quote. Quote, Sir, do you hold the Duke of Guise for friend or enemy? End quote. The king, without speaking, replied by a significant gesture. Quote, if it please your majesty to give me the order, I will this very day lay the duke's head at your feet. End quote. The three councillors who happened to be there cried out. The king held his peace. During this conversation at the Louvre, the Duke of Guise was advancing along the streets, dressed in a doublet of white damask, a cloak of black cloth, and boots of buffalo hide. He walked on foot, bareheaded, at the side of the Queen Mother in a sedan chair. He was tall, with fair, clustering hair and piercing eyes, and his scar added to his martial air. The mob pressed upon his steps. Flowers were thrown to him from the windows. Some, adoring him as a saint, touched him with chaplets which they afterwards kissed. A young girl darted towards him, and removing her mask, kissed him, saying, quote, Brave prince, since you are here, we are all saved. Guise, with a dignified air, quote, saluted and delighted everybody, says a witness, with eye and gesture and speech. End quote. Quote, by his side, said Madame de Retz, the other princes are commoners. End quote. Quote, the Huguenots, said another, become leaguers at the very sight of him. End quote. On arriving at the Louvre, he traversed the court between two rows of soldiers, the archers on duty in the hall, and the forty-five gentlemen of the king's chamber at the top of the staircase. Quote, what brings you hither? said the king, with difficulty restraining his anger. Quote, I entreat your majesty to believe in my fidelity, and not allow yourself to go by the reports of my enemies. End quote. Quote, did I not command you not to come at this season so full of suspicions, but to wait yet a while? End quote. Quote, Sir, I was not given to understand that my coming would be disagreeable to you. End quote. Catherine drew near, and in a low tone told her son of the demonstrations of which the duke had been the object on his way. Guise was received in the chamber of the queen, Louise de Vaudemont, who was confined to her bed by indisposition. He chatted with her a moment, and saluting the king, retired without being attended by any one of the officers of the court. Henry III confined himself to telling him that results should speak for the sincerity of his words. Guise returned to his house in the Faubourg Saint-Antoine, still accompanied by an eager and noisy crowd, but somewhat disquieted at heart both by the king's angry reception and the people's enthusiastic welcome. Brave as he was, he was more ambitious in conception than bold in execution, and he had not made up his mind to do all that was necessary to attain the end he was pursuing. The Committee of Sixteen, his confidants, and all the staff of the League met at his house during the evening and night between the ninth and 10th of May, preparing for the morrow's action without well knowing what it was to be, proposing various plans, collecting arms, and giving instructions to their agents amongst the populace. An agitation of the same sort prevailed at the Louvre. The king, too, was deliberating with his advisers as to what he should do on the morrow. Guise would undoubtedly present himself at his morning levee. 
should he at once rid himself of him by the poniards of the five-and-forty bravos which the duke of epernon had enrolled in gascony for his service or would it be best to summon to paris some troops french and swiss to crush the parisian rebels and the adventurers that had hurried up from all parts to their aid but on the tenth of may guise went to the louvre with four hundred gentlemen well armed with breastplates and weapons under their cloaks the king did nothing no more did guise the two had a long conversation in the queen-mother's garden but it led to no result on the eleventh of may in the evening the provost of tradesmen hector de perreuse assembled the town council and those of the district colonels on whom he had reliance to receive the king's orders orders came to muster the burgher companies of certain districts and send them to occupy certain positions that had been determined upon they mustered slowly and incompletely and some not at all and scarcely had they arrived when several left the posts which had been assigned to them the king being informed of this sluggishness sent for the regiment of the french guards and for four thousand swiss cantoned in the outskirts of paris and he himself mounted his horse on the twelfth of may in the morning to go and receive them at the gate of st honore these troops quote, filed along without fife or drum towards the cemetery of the innocents the populace regarded them as they passed with a feeling of angry curiosity and uneasy amazement when all the corps had arrived at the appointed spot quote, they put themselves in motion towards different points now making a great noise with their drums and fifes which marvellously astonished the inhabitants of the quarter noise provokes noise quote, incontinently says l'estoile everybody seizes his arms goes out on guard in the streets and cantons in less than no time chains are stretched across and barricades made at the corners of the streets the mechanic leaves his tools the tradesman his business the university their books the attorneys their bags the advocates their bands the presidents and councillors themselves take halberds in hand nothing is heard but shouts murmurs and the seditious speeches that heat and alarm a people the tocsin sounded everywhere barricades sprang up in the twinkling of an eye they were made within thirty paces of the louvre the royal troops were hemmed in where they stood and deprived of the possibility of moving the swiss being attacked lost fifty men and surrendered holding up their chaplets and exclaiming that they were good catholics it was thought sufficient to disarm the french guards the king remaining stationary at the louvre sent his marshals to parley with the people massed in the thoroughfares the queen-mother had herself carried over the barricades in order to go to guise's house and attempt some negotiation with him he received her coldly demanding that the king should appoint him lieutenant-general of the kingdom declare the huguenot princes incapacitated from succeeding to the throne and assemble the states-general at the approach of evening guise determined to go himself and assume the conqueror's heir by putting a stop to the insurrection he issued from his house on horseback unarmed with a white wand in his hand he rode through the different districts exhorting the inhabitants to keep up their barricades whilst remaining on the defensive and leaving him to complete their work he was greeted on all sides with shouts of hurrah for guise Quote, you wrong me my friends said he you should shout hurrah for the king he had the french guards and the swiss set at liberty and they defiled before him arms lowered and bareheaded as before their preserver next morning may thirteen he wrote to d'entragues 
governor of Orleans, quote, notify our friends to come to us in the greatest haste possible, with horses and arms, but without baggage, which they will easily be able to do, for I believe that the roads are open hence to you. I have defeated the Swiss, and cut in pieces a part of the king's guards, and I hold the Louvre invested so closely that I will render good account of whatsoever there is in it. This is so great a victory that it will be remembered for ever. That same day the provost of tradesmen and the royalist sheriffs repaired to the Louvre, and told the king that without great and immediate concessions they could not answer for anything. The Louvre was not in a condition of defence. There were no troops to be depended upon for resistance, no provisions, no munitions. The investment was growing closer and closer every hour, and the assault might commence at any instant. Henry the Third sent his mother once more to the Duke of Guise, and himself went out about four o'clock, dressed in a country suit and scantily attended, as if for a walk in the Tuileries. Catherine found the Duke as inflexible as he had been the day before. He peremptorily insisted upon all the conditions he had laid down already, the lieutenant-generalship of the kingdom for himself, the unity of the Catholic faith, forfeiture on the part of the King of Navarre, and every other Huguenot prince as heir to the throne, perpetual banishment of the king's favorites, and convocation of the states-general. The king, he said, purposes to destroy all the grandees of the kingdom and to harry all those who oppose his wishes and the elevation of his minions. It is my duty and my interest to take all the measures necessary for my own preservation and that of the people. Catherine yielded on nearly every point, at the same time, however, continually resuming and prolonging the discussion. One of the duke's most trusty confidants, Francis de Mainville, entered and whispered in his ear, Quote, Madame, cried the Duke, whilst your Majesty has been amusing me here, the King is off from Paris to harry me and destroy me. End quote. Henry the Third, indeed, had taken horse at the Tuileries, and attended by his principal councillors, unbooted and cloakless, had issued from the new gate and set out on the road to Saint Cloud. Equipping him in haste, his squire, Duald, had put his spur on wrong, and would have it set right, but, quote, that will do, said the king, I am not going to see my mistress, I have a longer journey to make, End quote. It is said that the corps on guard at the Nesle gate fired from a distance a salute of Arbus after the fugitive king, and that a crowd assembled on the other bank of the river shouted insults after him. At the height of Chaillot, Henry pulled up, and turning round towards Paris, quote, Ungrateful city, he cried, I have loved thee more than my own wife. I will not enter thy walls again but by the breach. End, quote. End of section forty nine.